I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss the legal and constitutional question of the week, if not the month, if not the year, and that is the legal and constitutional status of President Barack Obama's recent executive orders about immigration. These orders have reignited a long-simmering debate about the constitutional scope of the president's power to act without explicit congressional authorization. And on Thursday night, the president said he will order executive agencies to emphasize border security and de-emphasize the deportation of as many as 5 million unauthorized immigrants from the United States. Uh, these moves had been expected for days, and they were strongly contested by Republican leaders who view the immigration orders as the latest in a series of moves by the president that they believe are unconstitutional. The clash between the White House and Republican leaders goes back several years, uh, but the president's orders on immigration are seen by many critics as his broadest acts of executive power. Today, we're going to discuss the core arguments made by the president himself and laid out in greater detail in a 33-page memo issued by the Office of Legal Counsel, namely that the president is acting in the same way as many of his predecessors and that he has indeed both statutory and constitutional authority to uh, enforce the laws as he sees fit. Uh, and we'll also examine the arguments on the other side. We're delighted to welcome back two good friends of the National Constitution Center to review uh, the history of presidents and executive orders and to examine the recent controversy. Uh, Lewis Fisher is scholar in residence at the Constitution Project. Previously, he worked for four decades at the Library of Congress as senior specialist in separation of powers and specialist in constitutional law. Chris Edelson is an assistant professor in the Department of Government and director politics, policy, and law scholars program at American University. In March, Lou and Chris joined me for a wonderful discussion in Philadelphia at the center about the historical basis for the president's power in times of war. Now, nine months later, the nation is once again engaged in a debate about presidential power, and we're thrilled to have both of them help us sift through the legal arguments. So let's plunge right into it. Uh, Chris, can you give us a uh, broad description of why the Office of Legal Counsel has concluded that President Obama does indeed have the legal and constitutional authority to issue the executive orders that he does. And you might begin by telling us what sure. the executive orders do and then why the president thinks those are legally and constitutionally permissible. Well, the president, it's hard to, I, some of the details are a little unclear, but the, the general thrust of what the president is doing is extending deferral of deportation to a larger group than initially was done. A couple of years ago, President Obama decided to defer, defer deportation actions for the so-called dreamers, people brought, young people brought to the United States as children. Um, illegally. And now he's extending this to apply to another group of people, uh, people who are related to citizens. So parents who came here illegally but may have had a child born in the United States, who of course is a citizen under the Constitution. So the Office of Legal Counsel rests its, uh, President's, uh, President Obama's authority to do this mainly on statute, on the immigration laws, which uh, give the president discretion. Um, it, there's also a constitutional conception of prosecutorial discretion, but it's the the memo focuses on what the statute says about this and that Congress gives the president discretion to make choices about how to enforce the law. So there's, I think the estimates are about 12 million people in the United States without legal status 
illegally undocumented immigrants. Um, and there's not, there's simply not enough money in the budget each year to deport all of them. So, and this is true of essentially every law. You can't, you can't enforce every law 100%. This concept of prosecutorial discretion is pretty, um, you know, across the board established. And the OLC memo, the Office of Legal Counsel memo, uh, emphasizes that Congress has recognized discretion for the president in this, uh, this area too, which is true. The question is, there's discretion. The question is, where are the limits? And the Office of Legal Counsel concluded that uh, the president could do this and had not overstepped the limits of discretion. Critics will argue, of course, that the president's gone too far. Great. Thanks for setting us up so well. As you said, the Office of Legal Counsel did indeed endorse the legality of the president's proposed deferral action program for the parents of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents. However, they concluded in a separate analysis that the proposed deferral action for the parents of recipients of deferred action under the so-called DREAM Act, the Deferred Action yes. for Childhood Arrivals Program, would not be permissible. Let's talk about that DREAM Act uh, program uh, in just a bit. But Lou, I want you to respond to the core arguments made by the Office of Legal Counsel that the deferral action for the parents of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents is indeed both a permissible exercise of prosecutorial discretion and is also authorized by the text of the relevant laws. Well, what the OLC memo does is says that immigration officials' discretion, or however extensive it is, it says it's not, quote, unlimited. And that's what they attempt to do with the statutory provisions and with some of the precedents established. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, toward the end of the opinion, OLC states its conclusion that um, the department's uh, prioritization policy um, would be legally permissible, but that uh, the proposed deferred action for, for parents of these deferred action children uh, would not be permissible, so there are limits. Um, I think it's unfortunate last night that we didn't get a better legal understanding, constitutional understanding to the nation, and uh, thought what President Obama did last night was a, basically a political speech that was in some ways contradictory, because most of the speech uh, talked about how important immigration has been and how we are to accept uh, by the scripture uh, strangers, and yet he made clear that uh, anyone who attempts to come in the country now uh, will uh, have greater chance of being caught up. So I think the rhetoric last night was unfortunate. I wish he had held much more to basic policy and uh, not given what sounded like a political speech. Uh, Chris, I would like to sort of delve in with greater specificity on the statutory and constitutional arguments offered sure. by the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, broadly, the office uh, says that the relevant uh, statute uh, says, uh, and, 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 and this is the uh, Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, says that any alien in and admitted to the United States shall, upon order of the Attorney General, be removed if the alien falls into a bunch of classes. And then they go on to say that basically it's up to the Attorney General to decide whether or not to remove and that there's broad discretion to take into account a number of uh, considerations. And then the office notes a group of aliens who in the past have been uh, noted uh, deferred um, deportation, uh, including victims of Hurricane Katrina uh, and uh, a series of other uh, 
categories of aliens. So tell us more about the statutory argument about why the, the president has the power to single out certain categories of alien for deferred deportation. Yeah, it's basically just an argument. And there is language that relates to this, that Congress recognized, as it does in lots of statutes that it passes, that and by, by virtue of the fact that the money appropriated, as I mentioned before, just is not enough to deport everyone who's in the country illegally, that Congress was giving some discretion. Um, Congress was saying that uh, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security makes decisions about administering and enforcing the act, and uh, there's discretion. It's not unlimited discretion, as the OLC memo mentioned, and it, it has to be, I think, it, as Lou suggesting, a problem could be arbitrariness. It has to make sense. Um, and it certainly has to recognize limits, which the OLC memo was trying to do with what you and Lou mentioned before, the idea that OLC said, well, okay, you've, you've deferred action on these, the, the, the so-called dreamers category, but if you use that as a building block to then defer action for their parents, that would be going too far. So uh, the discretion is certainly not unlimited, but it is there. There's the statute recognizes discretion. And it's just, the concept of prosecutorial discretion is is I think has constitutional origins too apart from the statute, but the statute certainly recognizes an area of discretion. It's not an unlimited area, and the key question is have have clear limits been recognized? Uh, the OLC memo is trying to make the case that they have been, in particularly by by saying the president can't uh, recognize or can't provide deferral for the group you mentioned, the the parents of the dreamers. Lou, do you disagree with the OLC's conclusion that this is a permissible exercise of statutory discretion, of prosecutorial discretion, and that it's consistent with discretionary relief made to previous classes of aliens, such as the foreign students who were victims of Hurricane Katrina, battered aliens under the Violence Against Women Act, uh, and uh, other uh, groups uh, like that? I think deferred actions for widows and uh, widowers. The, the memo notes no fewer than five categories of aliens who have been uh, given deferred action before, do you think that this is any different? Yeah, I think it is different. Uh, I think there are all these precedents that Chris mentions and OLC mentions. I don't think any of them, even those who support what President Obama is doing, I think they all recognize that the magnitude of this is uh, no precedent for it uh, in American history, uh, the number of people involved. And also find it very interesting uh, how much Congress could control this through legislation. It might get vetoed, but they may try to cut back on appropriations. But as I understand it, and maybe you have a, a different view, that a lot of these agency operations don't uh, operate off of appropriations. They operate off of immigration fees. I guess Congress could try to change uh, that access to money, but uh, that could be vetoed as well. So some of the standard uh, checks by Congress by denying appropriations may not work in this area, even though I think the magnitude is quite unprecedented. Uh, Chris, what do you make of uh, Lou's argument that the magnitude is unusual? It is true that in 1986, uh, President Reagan signed an amnesty bill that granted legal status to 3 million undocumented immigrants, and that uh, President Bush in 1990 allowed 1.5 million undocumented spouses and children uh, to stay in the country. Uh, do those precedents, in your view, support um, President Obama, or do you, um, uh, or, what, or what's, do you have another response to Lou's well, claim that so, the magnitude yeah, is, is unprecedented? I'll say first, I agree with Lou that I'm concerned about that. If the, the prosecutorial discretion only makes sense if there are limits. So the question is, where are the limits? And the closer, obviously, I think everyone recognizes if you halt all immigration enforcement, that's going too far. 
Um, the problem is where do you cross the line when it gets close to that? I, I, there's no clear answer. Um, yes, presidents have, have done things like this in the past, as you suggest. The, the, pop, the total population of, of people in the country illegally at the time in the 80s when President Reagan acted was, was smaller than today. So the percentages in terms of people who were subject to deferral were, were comparable today to today. But the fact that presidents have done this before doesn't necessarily make action legitimate today. I, I think the problem is when do you cross the line from going from legitimate discretion to too far? There's a there's a letter that a group of immigration law professors wrote about this. They noted this argument. They said some have suggested that the size of the group who may, who may benefit from an act of prosecutorial discretion is relevant to its legality. We are unaware of any legal authority for such an assumption. So, all right, um, I guess that's true. But again, it doesn't really address this question, how far is too far? And I, I don't know precisely how to answer that. I think you need to identify a clear limit that makes sense. Um, when do you cross the threshold from legitimate discretion to going too far? I'm not sure. Uh, but the, obviously, the more people who are subject to deferral, the, the more of a problem it becomes. I think what this is reflecting, and Lou's suggesting this too, is it, this is uh, this is not the best way to do this kind of thing. So when people are subjected to deferral, it only gives them temporary relief anyways. This can change with a new president. President Obama could change his mind. Congress can take action, as, as Lou pointed out, and I think they should. Um, so I think that's part of the problem with what's going on. This is sort of a haphazard kind of ad hoc way to, to, solve, a, to solve a problem. And because this is, I think this is, is, is has gone farther than before, um, it's hard to say exactly where the limits are, and I think it's, I, I don't have a clear answer on that other than to say, yes, I'm concerned if a large number of people are subject to this, um, this deferral action, and I, I can't say with certainty when you go too far. At a certain point you do, and it's hard to say whether it's been reached yet, part, just because there's nothing clearly to address it. Luke, uh, tell us a little more about why precisely the magnitude of the deferrals raises constitutional and statutory questions. OLC notes that uh, Congress explicitly authorized the president to take into account these sort of humanitarian concerns when there was a prospect for the people who are benefiting staying in the country. And the Supreme Court in 2012 in the Arizona case uh, signaled that the president does indeed have broad uh, discretion over deferral. So, so what is it about the numbers that makes a constitutional and statutory difference? Well, I think the argument comes out of the OLC memo is that um, at one point the OLC memo says that uh, this area of uh, discretion of immigration law says does not lend itself easily to the application of set formulas or bright line rules. So when you're in that area of the law where it's not clear, I think the steps by president should be very measured and cautious. And I'm thinking now of another problem that President Obama got in, namely uh, the scope of his recess appointment power. That's also plenty of precedence for that, but it was one that has some limits to it. And OLC wrote a memo uh, uh, basically supporting what Obama was going to do. We mentioned there could be litigation, and not only was there litigation, but the Supreme Court struck it down. So I think when you're in this hazy area without any bright-line rules, uh, the, the approach to me should be one of caution and not, not boldness. Um, Chris, let's uh, turn to the second uh, 
a, a question where OLC expressed some legal uh, scruples, and that was the question of whether the um, parents of the so-called dreamers could get deferred deportation. And there, OLC said that they could not because they, unlike the parents of uh, legal aliens, had no prospect of permanently remaining in the United States. Tell us about uh, what the legal analysis there and whether you found it convincing. I think clearly they were trying to stake this out as a way to address the point who was making, where are the limits, and the point that critics are, are rightly raising. They're saying, well, here's one limit. The problem to me about it is I'm not sure um, how it makes sense. So if they're saying, well, there's no the nexus between this group and the group that deferral is already granted to, you're building off action the president already took, so this is sort of two steps removed. That doesn't completely make sense to me. Why couldn't the president simply do it independently? If the president has this kind of broad discretion, the statute suggests, the Constitution suggests, the president has prosecutorial discretion, um, why couldn't the president simply independently say, I want to grant deferral to this group? Why does it have to be connected? Why is that what makes it significant, the fact that this group is connected to the dreamers? I'm not sure I follow that. Um, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to me sort of um, from a consistency standpoint, but it's clear they're trying to stake out a limit and saying this is something that will limit presidential discretion. Uh, Lou, do you find, I, I understand you're not persuaded by the, the first conclusion that the uh, initial uh, deferred deportation is permissible, but do you find the distinction between the dreamers and the kids of the um, the parents of U.S. citizens convincing? I thought that part of OLC opinion was reasonable and also reminds me of some other things that came in the speech last night that I don't think is in the OLC memo. I didn't see it um, that President Obama said uh, his new policy wouldn't apply to migrant farm workers um, and it looks like it's uh, anyone with some highly skilled background could more easily stay. So there's another distinction that sounds like much more of a policy distinction that could be done by statute rather than by one branch. But um, I, I wonder if, if, if all of you um, also wondered why um, President Obama would make that distinction between farm workers and highly skilled foreigners. Uh, Chris, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that concerns me. I think Lou was right. So there's, there has to be a logic to the way that discretion is being uh, applied. And as the OLC memo acknowledged, the president can't, under the guise, this is from quoting from their memo, under the guise of exercising enforcement discretion, attempt to effectively rewrite the laws to match policy preferences. And that, yeah, I mean, I think that's a concern about uh, if this is not done in a, in a way that makes sense and looks like simply a subjective choice, that looks more like a, a policy decision. Lou, you're a world-renowned expert on congressional authority, and we know that in so many of these cases involving the president and Congress, the crucial precedent is the Youngstown case, where Justice Jackson said that the president's authority is at its highest ebb when he acts with congressional support, at its lowest ebb when he acts in the face of congressional disapproval, and in a zone of twilight when Congress is ambiguous. How does the Youngstown analysis apply here? What did the OLC say its relevance was, and why did OLC conclude that Congress had uh, if not explicitly endorse these actions, not rejected them. Okay, the, the, the so-called three categories in Youngstown, even Justice Jackson, before uh, itemizing them, said it's overly simplified. It's a starting point uh, and doesn't get you an answer at all. 
And just to give you a good example, why it doesn't give you an answer, when the New York Times broke the story that Bush II administration had been doing warrantless surveillance, um, two attorneys in Congressional Research Service wrote a paper basing on Youngstown that it fell into the third category because it didn't have any statutory authority. So it was at the lowest ebb of presidential power. And I thought pretty sure what the Justice Department would do, and they did. They based their analysis on Youngstown and said it's in the upper highest category uh, because of, uh, of the FISA, uh, of the uh, authorization for use of military force after 9-11. So uh, Jackson's categories can be gamed and, and, and was gamed there. Uh, Chris, um, do you disagree with the conclusion that uh, this is at least in the zone of twilight, if not in uh, in, in Category 1, where, where Congress has explicitly endorsed it? Well, Congress has certainly, certainly explicitly endorsed some authority. The question is how far it goes. So I think the Obama administration is a better case than what Lou's referring to with the Bush administration and the surveillance program using the AUMF as support for warrantless surveillance or the bulk metadata collection. Um, I think they're on stronger ground. OLC it doesn't does not discuss. I think Youngstown is only cited once or twice in their in their memo. But um, it's I think certainly uh, young under Youngstown analysis, which as Lou points out, certainly can be gamed and it's more starting point for analysis than than a clear framework. Under Youngstown analysis, I think uh, it's clear Congress has granted some authority. The question just becomes once again, where are the limits? Lou, when we think about the scope of congressional action, or rather presidential actions that the Supreme Court has upheld, um, is this the most dramatic, uh, obviously the most notorious, is the Japanese internment, where by executive order the president interned large numbers of American citizens of Japanese origins. Um, if that was okay with the Supreme Court, why would this be a problem? Oh, I think, uh, yeah, the two Japanese-American cases were unfortunate because the court felt in the area of, of national security it had no grounds to challenge executive and military judgments. And, and we know now that uh, those judgments were faulty. Um, I, I, I think uh, what the OLC memo says uh, is that these, this area of immigration uh, is basically left up to the two political branches and that there's little room here for judicial review. And um, I, I think that's uh, essentially correct. So uh, even more, if you have no judicial check, how, how important it is to have the two branches work jointly on, on immigration policy. Uh, Chris, I, I wonder uh, what you think about the J Japanese president and d does it Come back to the numbers that the, of people affected. Certainly, there were uh, large numbers of uh, Japanese American citizens who were uh, affected. Just just historically, are are the president's critics correct to say that this is a historically unprecedented exercise of executive power over immigration? Well, I'm not sure if it's historically unprecedented. I think it's different from what happened with Japanese Americans. Um, I think that the as Lou suggested, the argument that was made, first of all, that the, the government lied to the court about what was happening. They said they had evidence that Japanese Americans were engaged in sabotage and espionage. They knew that wasn't correct. The general, General DeWitt, who was in command, uh, who was in charge of the relocation instrument effort, clearly had racist views. At one point he said, a Jap is a Jap, using a racial epithet, meaning he, you know, he didn't care if you were a U.S. citizen or not. As far as he's concerned, it's all members of an enemy race. 
Uh, the government knew that. He said, you could give me all the time in the world, I'll never be able to sort out loyal from disloyal Japanese Americans, and the government concealed that from the court. Um, so I think the, the, what was going on with Japanese Americans was clearly motivated by racism, not a concern for national security. So the government just wasn't telling the truth. The court is overly deferential. Some of the justices recognized this. Justice Murphy said, hey, the real, this is, if this was about national security, I would be deferential, but it's not. It's, it's really, the motivation is racism. So I th he saw that at the time. So I think that's, you know, that's different from what's going on now. And, but I also think another difference is, as Lou points out, very unlikely this will get to the courts. Um, the men, uh, Hirabayashi and Korematsu, who challenged the internment decision and the curfew uh, were prosecuted. And so they, their cases were in court. They had an easy way to get judicial review, and they did. I don't see how this action gets challenged. I don't see how a court would find standing. Um, I'm not sure what relief they could give. I think it's something, as Lou said, that's left to the branches to sort out. What that means is it's really important what Congress does. And I think Congress cannot be silent here. Congress cannot be an act of Congress has to do something to respond. And they have a number of tools available. They can pass legislation. They can take action with regard to spending, as Lou said. They can do more dramatic things if they think this is justified, like even shutting down the government or impeaching the president. I don't personally think those are well advised, but those are tools they have at their disposal. So the fact for critics who say the president has gone too far, the ultimate and I think best way to respond to that is for Congress, if that's correct, is for Congress to take action to check the president, which they certainly can do, and they have tools available to, to do that. Great. Okay, Lou, let's uh, delve in just a little bit to the options available to Congress. There have been several that both of you have put on a table, uh, on, on the table ranging from defunding uh, parts of the government that implement the executive order to try to repeal the executive order to suing the uh, president. Obama, uh, ultimately to impeachment. Tell us, uh, tell us more about those options and any others that are available to Congress. Oh, I agree with Chris. Uh, I don't think impeachment um, is the way to go. Um, I think suing the president, uh, the Speaker Boehner lawsuit, uh, uh, no particular reason to think that uh, anyone would get standing on that. So uh, the Republicans uh, have a uh, not just a legal a constitutional issue, but a political one, um, they have to watch uh, uh, in, in future campaigns um, about the uh, uh, Latino vote. And um, uh, they're going to have to make a, a judgment. And the Democrats as well, the Democrats have to make a judgment, not just catering to the Latino vote, but alienating uh um, the votes of U.S. citizens who are white, black, uh, uh, other races, and um, who have, since 2008, had a very difficult time finding work and seeing that these uh, jobs are often going to illegal people. So I think both parties are, are going to have to make a very sophisticated political judgment on uh, steps that they take now and how that might backfire on them in future elections. Chris, can uh, put put this in the context of the existing House lawsuit against President Obama or the threatened one for his failure to implement parts of the Affordable Care Act. The House has just hired its third new attorney in this lawsuit effort after the first two resigned. Uh, the suit hasn't been filed, but the House leaders could add an immigration order to it. Uh, what What's the core of the argument that the, the president is failing to take care that the laws are executed? And how does the argument uh, differ in this immigration context uh, than it does in the Affordable Care Act context? Well, I think, 
I think neither of them is likely to be decided by a court, but I think the Affordable Care Act argument is is weaker. The the argument is that by delaying implementation of the employer mandate, which applies to employers with more than 50 employees, um, the President Obama is not fulfilling his, his constitutional duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Um, that's You're right. That's what the House has authorized so far, a lawsuit on those grounds against delayed implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Um, first of all, I don't think there's any way a court would recognize standing. I mean, what action can they take to remedy that harm? They can't are they going to tell the president which parts of the law to enforce and how quickly? I don't think they would feel competent or capable of doing that. And, but even if they did on the merits, it seems like a pretty clear case of prosecutorial or enforcement discretion. Um, administrations do this all the time. It's happened in other contexts. It's happened with uh, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, laws are complicated and it takes time to enforce them and things are put off. So I think the Affordable Care Act argument is, is weaker um, the argument with regard to the immigration decision will be, it's a similar one, that the president is failing to enforce the law and failing to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Um, there's more of an argument there because it is starting to approach. It's, it's much more dramatic than the really routine decision under the Affordable Care Act to delay implementation. It gets closer to this line of has discretion gone too far. But I think still the basic problem is court is very unlikely to find standing. Justice Scalia addressed this in a different context in the Windsor case, uh, I think 2013, and he said, look, disputes like this are sorted out between the two branches of the government, and they're well-equipped, as I mentioned before, as Lewis mentioned, Congress has tools available to uh, respond to these actions and to uh, take steps to rein in the president when they think the president has gone too far. So I think neither of those arguments will, will succeed in court or probably even be heard on the merits, but between the two of them, there's, there's a stronger argument with regard to the Immigration Act than there is with regard to the Affordable Care Act. Lou, do you agree with Chris that there's a stronger constitutional take care argument for the Immigration Act than the uh, Affordable Care Act? And, and more specifically, I really want our listeners to understand, do you also agree that when prosecutorial discretion goes too far or a decision not to enforce certain parts of a law goes too far, that violates the president's constitutional duties to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Yeah, I think what President Obama has done, and we really don't have adequate details on the whole program yet, what was given last night is, is not adequate. Uh, I think once we see the whole thing, that we'll see that this is legislative policy making without Congress. Uh, it's not mere uh, prosecution prosecutorial discretion, much greater than that. And uh, that could, um, I can see grounds for a court um, um, saying that OLC itself admitted that there are, are limits, there are no bright line rules, and there, if there are no limits and you go beyond them, you may be in trouble. And um, I, I could see a bit greater grounds, as, as Chris has said, for traction in the courts on this immigration issue than on the Affordable Care Act. Chris, what is the most direct precedent for a court holding that the president's decision not to enforce parts of a law violate his constitutional duties to take care that the laws are faithfully executed? I can't think of one. I mean, these, as mostly these cases don't generally get decided on the merits. They're typically dismissed on standing grounds. So I can't really think of one in this context. Um, I think there's not a lot of precedent there, as the as the OLC noted, and this this letter I mentioned, written by immigration law professors, noted 
Um, there's certainly a, an idea that at a certain point you go too far, but I can't think of a case that's actually said that. That does now, the court is not certainly not the only one that has the ability to weigh in on constitutional meaning. And I really think, you know, the, the way this has been worked out generally is between the two elected branches of the government, the president and Congress. If Congress thinks the president has gone too far, uh, Congress can take action. And I think that's certainly the case here. That doesn't mean judicial action is impossible, but I think uh, congressional action is, is the sort of more obvious choice to me, at least, in terms of response if you think the president has gone too far. Lou, can you think of any pre precedence on this point? And uh, if not, uh, uh, what are the closest congressional precedents? I can think of precedents where presidents have acted unilaterally and have been struck down in the courts. Uh, this is not on all square grounds, but uh, President Nixon claimed he had inherent authority not to spend appropriated money. He lost about uh, 78 out of 80 cases, including the one went to the Supreme Court. And I think of George W. Bush claimed he had inherent authority to create military tribunals uh, without going to Congress. Uh, that got to the Supreme Court in Hamdan. That was struck down. So uh, there are other areas where presidents have claimed uh, unilateral authority to make national policy and, uh, and lost in court. Chris, is this a theme throughout history, the one that identifies that when presidents act unilaterally uh, rather than with congressional support, they're on more vulnerable grounds, uh, both in court and in the political arena? Yeah, I think that's clearly true. That Young Sanchez, although it certainly has its limits, um, I think rightly points out that the president is on stronger grounds when the president's acting with congressional approval. doesn't mean the president can never act unilaterally. Unilateral action is, is okay, but it has to be justified. It has to be linked to either the Constitution or to statutory authority. Um, and so if there's no statutory authority and the president is acting unilaterally, it just takes it. There's fewer bases, bases to, to justify the action. So it's not impossible. Unilateral action can be justified. Presidents do this, and it, it's not always um, illegitimate. But it's certainly, I think, to me, the, the most useful thing about Young San Sheet, Justice Jackson is a former advisor, attorney general to President Roosevelt himself. I think what he was mainly saying was, he was telling presidents, you are on stronger ground when you act with Congress. And the OLC memo is trying to slot presidential action into that framework. Now, of course, as Luz pointed out, Young San Sheet creates an incentive for presidents to overread statutory authority because if they can claim a link to statutory authority, they're on stronger ground under Young San Sheet. Um, the fact that a president says that their action is justified by statute doesn't necessarily mean it's correct. But yes, the harder case is when the president is truly acting unilaterally. It's still not impossible to justify action unilaterally, but it's, it's just, you know, it's just harder. There's less, less room for the president um, in that area. Lou, give us the benefit of your, your long uh, historical perspective. You, you've indicated that you think that this immigration order represents unjustified unilateral action. Is it, uh, you know, better or worse than Nixon's decision not to spend appropriated funds or President Bush's decision to create military tribunals? Where, where would you put it on the scale of unilateral presidential action? Well, I would put it fairly high up and one where I think President Obama is vulnerable, just like he was vulnerable on his recess appointments. On, on the steel seizure case, uh, language I still thrill reading at, Justice Jackson, toward the end of his opinion, said, and this is someone, of course, who spent his whole early career in the executive branch, but Justice Jackson said, with all his defects, delays, and inconveniences, 
Men have discovered no technique for long preserving free government except that the executive be under the law and that the law be made by parliamentary deliberations. And I love that principle. I think that's the one that protects the Constitution. And that principle, I don't think, was uh, paid any attention to by President Obama. Great. Well, it's time, uh, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Chris, uh, I want you to sort of predict what uh, you think uh, will happen. How might Congress respond? How might the courts respond? And do you think that the president's executive order ultimately will be implemented? Um, I think how Congress is is going to respond, it's hard to predict with certainty. I, I guess the best I can say is the options they're talking about. I think it's pretty clear the leadership in Congress would like to do something more restrained. Um, Speaker Boehner and uh, Senator McConnell in the Senate are are rejecting the idea of a shutdown, not embracing impeachment. I think they'd like to do something more minimal, um, maybe you know targeting some spending or possibly holding up nominations, taking other actions like that. Um, but there are clearly people within the party. Um, Senator Cruz has made remarks in this context who would like to go further. Congressman Barton from Texas was talking about the possibility of impeachment. So I think it's a question of who wins out. Does the, leader, does the leadership win out that would like to take a more restrained approach? Or do the kind of these people in the party, the more, I guess, for lack of a better word, rank and file outside the leadership, outside the, not, I guess, less establishment Republicans who are calling for uh, broader measures, do they win out? Um, and are they able to... Uh, force a shutdown as Senator Cruz is suggesting. I don't know. It's hard to say how to say hard to say how that will work out. Um so it's hard to predict, but I think those are the choices that are available. Great. Thanks so much for that uh thoughtful uh summary. Uh Lou, what do you think is gonna happen in Congress and the courts? Well Congress and the courts, well uh, for Congress, I think an opportunity was lost, I think, after the election, after Democrats lost badly in the House and the Senate. Um, President Obama could have reached out to Republicans. We don't know what their reaction would have been to find out some fix on immigration and work jointly. Uh, he didn't do that, and we still don't know if President Obama thought he had the authority to do what he announced last night. Why he didn't do that before the election? Was that a political decision or what? So um, even though I think there's, I believe, bad blood between the two branches right now, um, I still think both branches would be smart politically and institutionally to uh, stop uh, gamesmanship and um, sit down and see if they can do something jointly. I think that's what voters wanted in the election, to have the two branches work jointly and effectively and uh, not not uh, um, score political points. So um, I don't know if, what capacity there is. I don't think President Obama has shown much capacity or interest in working uh, that kind of closeness with the other party on this uh, instead of giving speeches. So, uh, and some people wonder if President Obama's immigration uh, policy is to try and save something in his last uh, second term. Uh, so, you know, does he have a capacity to uh, um, sit down with Republicans, see what jointly they can do in terms of effective immigration policy? Wonderful. Well, th thank you for those very thoughtful observations as well. 
to our great podcast listeners, it's not often that we have news flashes on these podcasts, but the New York Times is just reporting in real time that House Republicans have filed a long-threatened lawsuit against the Obama administration over his unilateral actions on the health care law that they say are abuses of the president's executive authority. We will see if that lawsuit presages another suit over the immigration order. Uh, Lou and Chris, I want to thank you very sincerely for an extremely nuanced, thoughtful, and quite illuminating discussion of the most hotly contested constitutional and statutory question uh, of the week. We'll look forward to having both of you back as these uh, discussions of executive power continue. Um, Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.